the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. There is a book out that is of such significance that it could change the rhetoric of the world. It is titled Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All by Michael Schellenberger. He's one of the leading environmentalist activists in the world, and he has written an apology on behalf of the environmentalist movement, which now, of course, loathes him. Once again, I feel vindicated, and uh, we will learn why. He was named by Time Magazine a hero of the environment. By the way, I, I was never named that, just for the record. He is the winner of the 2008 Green Book Award from the Stevens Institute of Technology Center for Science Writings. He has testified for the IPCC, etc., etc. And now he has the courage to say, we have misled you. Michael Schellenberger, welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Dennis. Tell us what happened to your article where you wrote this mea culpa, this apology on behalf of the environmentalist movement that was up at Forbes, for which you are a columnist, correct? Yes, and they took it down. <laughs> um, against, uh, against my objections, uh, needless to say, um, I felt that the article did not violate any policies. Uh, certainly, there are no policies that are violated that I'm aware of or that are written down anywhere. Um, and I've also very much enjoyed writing for Forbes, and they have actually allowed me to publish um, the truth and the facts for many years now, and and I'm going to continue to do that. And so we've come to an agreement that my first-person articles will be somewhere else. Um, so I think that's about all I'm comfortable saying at this point because I do want to have I do want to keep the relationship. That's fine. I'm I'm not here to expose the bad that uh, Forbes did to you. But it, it, I will just say that if Forbes cannot handle something that disturbs environmentalism, it shows the the grip that it has. I mean, obviously, nothing like what you wrote would appear in the New York Times. But I would have, I, I read Forbes often, and I, I expected better. What can I say? So you don't have to even react. I just want you to know my disappointment. How have your colleagues, thank you, how how have your colleagues in the environmentalist movement reacted to you? Well, there's 
um, a lot of you know, there's a lot of diversity of views. I mean, one of the things that's been happening is that people in the environmental movement have been changing their minds about things like nuclear energy. Um, and I've, I've helped with that a bit over the last few years and making the case for nuclear. And I tend to find that people that are pro-nuclear are less apocalyptic in general. And I, I think it has something to do with the fact that they understand that nuclear is effectively infinite energy, and with infinite energy you have infinite freshwater fertilizer and food, and therefore there's never ever going to be resource scarcity as long as we have nuclear energy. So all of the apocalyptic claims that some of the climate campaigners make about you know, running out of food, I think there's some intuitive sense, I don't want to suggest that it's overly conscious, but some intuitive sense that that's not quite right, that our capacity for technical ingenuity is very high. And there's others that are obviously the, the people that I'm criticizing in the book who are very defensive. I think the interesting thing now, Dennis, because it's only been out for a couple of days, I don't think very many people have really read it yet. They haven't read the book. They read the, they read the article I wrote, but I think that when they read the book, I think they're going to discover that their paradigm, their religion, is what I argue is what it is, is in real trouble. It's actually completely hollow and rotten, and Apocalypse Never, I think, gives kind of the final push to that that uh, Berlin Wall of apocalyptic environmentalism, so to speak, and it, I think it, it is entering its final period. I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but I, I don't know if it'll be in a month, but I don't think it'll take two years for basically the core elements of what we consider to be environmentalism to be completely discredited. Well, rare good news in the year 2020. I want to read from uh, your article uh, some things that this lifelong environmentalist has written. Here are some facts few people know. Humans are not causing a sixth mass extinction. The Amazon is not the lungs of the world. Climate change is not making natural disasters worse. Fires have declined 25% around the world since 2003. The amount of land we use for meat, humankind's biggest use of land, has declined by an area nearly as large as Alaska. The buildup of wood fuel and more... Houses near forests, not climate change, explain why there are more and more dangerous fires in Australia and California. Carbon emissions are declining in most rich nations and have been declining in Britain, Germany, and France since the mid-1970s. This one I love. Netherlands became rich, not poor, while adapting to life below sea level. I never thought of that. That's, that's pretty powerful. That's as powerful as Bill Gates, another alarmist, who just bought a $43 million home on the coast. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I always wonder why people who predict imminent drowning of, of places on the coast are buying expensive properties on the coast. Is that a legitimate question? It is for me. Yes, of course. It's obviously an illegitimate question. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, the, uh, you know, people like you, Bjorn Lomborg, I mean, who have such credentials, uh, have been saying these things. And the, 
the dismissal of people, the deniers, is always the denialists, climate deniers. Prager University, where you have some courses coming out, is, of course, a climate de- deni- denialist. I, I'm curious, on a personal note, because that always interests me, was it, and, and I mean this with utter, uh, uh, not only sincerity, but praise for you, did you simply awaken one day and say, I just can't participate in, in this, uh, essentially, what is a lie? Oh, heavens no. It was a very, it's been a very long process. I mean, I think this is, um, you know, I mean, really, for some ways, Apocalypse Never is the the bookend to an essay I wrote 15 years ago called Death of Environmentalism. And at the time, it was motivated out of a sense in which I was reading a lot of civil rights histories. I was reading this beautiful history of the civil rights movement called Parting the Waters by Taylor Branch. I'm sure you know it. Mm-hmm. And it's about love in the face of hatred. It's a very profound book. Uh, it's a very Christian book in that sense. And after reading it, you know, and I, I mean, not in one sitting, you know, it's a huge book, um, but after reading passages of it, I would feel happy. I would feel um, a real optimism and, and real sense of, uh, of just the, that, you know, that the world was a good place and that humans, that there's a lot of people that are doing, that are really good people in it. Um, then I would read Bill McKibben or other apocalyptic environmentalists, and I would literally feel depressed afterwards. And I was aware enough of my feelings that I thought, you know, something's not right here. Um, at a psychological level, I thought there's sort of something wrong here that it's so depressing. And I didn't know enough. I mean, I just didn't know anything yet. I didn't know about energy. I didn't know about technology. I didn't really – it was 15 years ago. Um, so – but fast forward to today, I do know all that stuff, um, and I felt like it all really came together. I've been, I've been kind of dealing with big parts of this paradigm. I mean, you went through that list. You know, I mean, that to get to that list took 15 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to get to those, each of those bullet points mm. is very, very serious. That's right. Very That's why I read it. Very carefully constructed. I wrote, you know, it took, um, I'm very, the book is a very careful book. It's the ultimate uh, cold take. It's an ice cold take. It's the opposite of Twitter. Every sentence is, you know, it's 100 pages of footnotes in a, in a 400 page book. I've spent a, a, a good part of my writing and broadcasting life talking about this alarmism. Uh, I, in one of my books, I just list the number of hysterias of my lifetime that uh, have captivated the public. Do you have a theory on uh, on this? Is the hysteria over the world collapsing, the Al Gore-induced hysteria, is it deliberate? In other words, we need to make the world uh, hysterical, as it were? Uh, is it manipulative? Do they truly believe this? I mean, what is your thinking on the whole thing? Well, those are really important questions and really interesting questions. And, of course, they're really difficult questions because we can't see inside people's minds, and so we don't know. So we have to look for hints, um, suggestions. I'll, I'll, say, I'll say simply what I think, and then I can try to complexify it a bit. I mean, I think that for the most part – Apocalyptic environmentalists are in the grip of a religion 
They don't know that they're in the grip of a religion, though. So you or, you or I might say we're Jewish or Christian or Muslim or Hindu or something, and we say that's our religion. Apocalyptic environmentalists, they don't say that. They say, no, no, I, you, you might have a religion, but I am secular or atheist or I don't believe in God. I'm, I'm, I know from science. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, science proves it. And so the, this is the, the most dangerous thing is that they have a religion and they don't, they don't acknowledge it. They don't really admit it. Now, do they know sometimes that they're lying? Yes. And I can document cases where I can show that and even some confessions from people, particularly around nuclear. I mean, the advocacy for nuclear and uh, I'm sorry, the advocacy against nuclear and the advocacy for renewables basically consists entirely of lying to people. I mean, I, I don't I, I don't really feel the need to soften very much because I've now done the research. I can make that claim. Um, renewables, they claim, are better for the environment than fossil fuels. They're not. They're worse. Um, they claim that nuclear is particularly bad for the environment. It's not. It's the best. And the reasons for that are physical, inherent to the energy density of the fuel and the power density of their production, of, of electricity production, or the conversion of those fuels into electricity. That has been, that is not controversial. Like this energy density and power density are like the gravity of energy analysis. It's it's just you just measure the size, how much land a plant takes, and the amount of electrical output, and that's your that's your power density number. And in fact, we've known now. There's two beautiful books on this that show that the industrial revolution could not have happened without coal. Wood did not provide enough energy for the industrial revolution. They had to have coal to have industrialization, and so we know that you can't power an industrial civilization on renewables. It just requires too much land. I mean, I cite. The best study on this, a full book-length uh, study published by MIT that shows that we currently use a half a percent of land in the United States for energy production. If you did 100% renewable, you would need 50% of the U.S. land mass. That's never, ever going to happen, and even attempting it has been ecologically devastating. So for me, maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I just kind of go, when there's a lie, when there's truth that is so obvious, and so clearly understood among scientists and, and scholars that is being denied publicly and denied to journalists and denied by journalists and denied by politicians, eventually, eventually the truth will win out. That is my belief. And I, I just think Apocalypse Never will make it happen sooner rather than later. That's the hope. That's why I'm, I'm, I'm devoting so much time to it. The uh, I, I've thought through all of these issues my whole life. Uh, I... Whenever I hear eventually, it's like eventually the good wins. The tragedy is, though, that until the eventually happens, the amount of damage done by the liars. Mm. Enormous. Is, yeah, see, that, you know, eventually communism fell in the Soviet Union, but that not after 20 to 40 million people were murdered by Stalin and, and the other communists. Uh, eventually, uh, the Nazis were defeated, but 6 million Jews and millions of others were slaughtered so uh the damage these people are doing uh the with the with the apocalypse let me ask you then when you hear i heard yesterday just yesterday i don't remember if it was national or california um, mandate that all cars being built by 2035 that's 15 years from now be electric cars what's your reaction 
Well, so the car, so transportation, I mean, the, let, me, let me say one thing before I answer. Let me come into it a little indirectly, which is that, you know, Apocalypse Never describes what is really the main event in terms of protecting the environment and in driving human prosperity, which are energy transitions. So in a, in a small farmer economy, in a, in a subsistence farming economy, which is what we all used to live in, but now just a billion or so of us do, it's a renewable-powered economy. They use wood energy. They might use water wheels or wind windmills. And then as they start to develop, they use the highest form of renewable energy, which are large hydroelectric dams. But then you transition to coal, to petroleum, to natural gas, to uranium. And that, that's a – which is for nuclear, which is a positive direction because in each stage in that energy transition, you're moving up the energy ladder. You're using less of the natural environment. You're getting more energy out of a lump of coal or out of a lump of uranium uh, than you would a lump of wood. So that's so that that's just some context. Now, the easiest if we if we want to reduce air pollution and reduce carbon emissions, which I think is a good goal to have. I don't think climate change is the most important issue in the world. I do think it's something we should continue to do something on. I point out that we've already been reducing our emissions, as you mentioned. Um, the, the easiest thing to do is just build nuclear power plants like so many countries have, and you can then produce you know, zero-carbon electricity. The hardest things right now, if you wanted to try to you know, replace petroleum in, in the transportation economy, the problems, I think everybody knows, there's just problems with electric cars, with batteries. They're very material-intensive. They're very expensive. Obviously, you have a range problem. So there's some real debate scholars around whether or not the big investments for future energy for transportation should be from hydrogen gas or from electric batteries. And my view is um, we don't know yet, and there's just a lot of uh, demonstration that needs to be done uh, before we can just dis before we somehow know that lithium batteries, which just have big problems, are somehow going to be the best. So I let me I look I've I've said this. But I'm not a scientist, and I'm not a, an environmentalist. I've even said that this was, you find this of interest. Uh, I have quoted th probably a hundred times, even though he never said it. G.K. Chesterton is the person they generally attach this quote to. When people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And oh, then, my gosh. I had never heard that before. I knew you'd love it. No, I, yeah. I I knew you would love it, because uh, I, I think I I have a sense of who you are, and uh, you're a thinker, but that's exactly it. I just just so you'll know, since you are a thinker, uh, I have described my life's work, thirty five years on radio, ten books, etc., as if it had to be boiled down to one subject, it would be the consequences of secularism. And uh, this is this uh, all the isms that arise: Marxism, socialism, environmentalism, feminism. They are substitute religions after the death of Christianity. And I'm a Jew saying this. So uh, you, you know, it was hard for me to keep quiet, but I so wanted people to hear your description of this as a religion. Anyway, let me ask you on specifics. So we're told over and over. 97% of scientists agree that carbon emissions are heating the planet. 
What is your response to that? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, I guess my book is my book is different from um, you know I think a lot of the criticisms of climate alarmism in the past. So I do think that the climate is changing. I do think the planet is warming. I do think humans are having an influence on the climate. Um, uh, but I, I don't think that it's apocalyptic. I don't even think it's our worst problem. And I think that the use of that 97% of scientists um, claim, which first of all, I'm not, I've not looked into it myself, uh, but I am, there's something about it that doesn't seem quite right. And I see it used, I see it abused to, to basically stifle debate and narrow the debate. And so I've, um, I would never, I've never repeated that line or, 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 or think it's value to it. In fact, I think it, what it's saying is that somehow um, if you're in the 3%, that you're unimportant. But, of course, we know that the way that, that knowledge evolves and progresses and, and humans un- understand, our understanding evolves is that, uh, that what we think we are so sure we know turns out to be wrong, and sometimes it ends up being radically wrong. I mean, we've seen this now on diet, where there's the, the promotion of a high-carb diet has fallen apart. There's a bunch of a big scientific replication crisis going on right now. And we've got so-called scientific bodies that are allowing themselves, and by which I mean the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which invited me to serve as an expert reviewer, so I'm, this is all coming from inside the church, so to speak, has, per, has participated in, in being alarmist and in being apocalyptic. And I, it, it, IPCC needs to either change or it needs to just fold as an organization because of its contribution to the alarmism. So I find the bullying that's used stifle scientific inquiry and debate. I find the use of the word skeptic as a pejorative to be offensive because we should all strive to be skeptical uh, in our science and in our faith. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, uh, anyway, I, that's, that's my reaction to that sentence. You, your book has uh, discussions of various people obviously instrumental in this field. Bill McKibben is probably the best known for those of us who follow this stuff. So I was just reading where he his father was arrested for an, ant, in a, an anti-nuclear uh, weapons demonstration or was active in it and he became anti-nuclear power, not just nuclear weapons. What, what, well, before I say what, let me offer you, since you're one of those guests that I, it's so obvious you think, so you will like another one, or, well, if you don't like it, you will find it fascinating, let's put it that way. David Horowitz, the only person I believe knows the left better than I do, uh, said about environmentalism many years ago that it was uh, a watermelon, green on the outside and red on the inside. So, McGibbon, the watermelon, take it from there. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things, one of the questions I had is how did environmentalism marry basically socialism on the one hand and Malthusianism on the other hand? Malthus, you know, Thomas Malthus was the 18th century economist. He's generally thought of as a conservative. 
He was hated by Marx and Engels. They called him a, a stain on the human race. <laughs> um, so how did socialists then come to – and you know, the big idea, of course, of Malthus is that we're going to run out of food. And he, was, he couldn't have been more wrong. I mean, the opposite has happened, right? Humans have gotten better at producing more food and, and obviously sustaining a much larger human population. So in the 60s, basically what happens is that you know, it was no longer socially acceptable or politically popular to be a socialist anymore. And so – they, there was a deliberate attempt to sort of uh, find a different label or brand for socialist agenda, which was to gain control over large parts of the economy, particularly food and energy, uh, which have to do with the environment. And they then sort of there was an accommodation made. I mean, I'm not suggesting there was some explicit agreement, but just a kind of after some arguments and debates. And the idea was we will work – that environmentalists would, would – the Malthusians and the socialists would work together to make everybody in rich countries poorer, and we would try to lift up people in poor countries a little bit. They'd get a solar panel and a battery for their hut, for example, along with some empowerment workshops, you know, but certainly not flood control or hydroelectric dams or anything that would actually lift them out of poverty. And that was the deal that was made. It's a really monstrous hybrid of Malthusianism and Marxism. So that's my only amendment to the watermelon theory. I think it gets it about half right, but it misses the fact that it also contains this noxious Malthusianism. When they say that uh, carbon emissions raise the temperature, which in turn will lead to massive droughts and the uh, flooding of coastal areas all over the earth. What is your response? Yeah, it's it's they're they're talking about they're talking those are biblical stories, aren't they? Yes. Um you know, it's uh they're reconstructing their religion as uh you know, as the story of the end. Um so, you know, the the science of course shows that the way we deal if there is more precipitation and more flooding, the way we'll deal with that is by having better flood control systems. You know, so the New York Times recently did a big piece on flooding, you know, which suggested that the climate plays this really important role. You know, and is it, but it, it never mentions the fact that what makes a difference between whether you have bad floods or not is whether you have a proper flood control system. And did you actually maintain it? And is it large enough? And that's the main event. And so I I think it's really irresponsible to be telling school children that that somehow they're going to be washed away or that. um, And, of course, the thing you cite is from not from 2019, but from 1989. So this alarmism has been just uh, going on for so long, for 30 years. And I, I think, though, that it is kind of running out of steam. I mean, when you have to put a 17-year-old girl as your main spokesperson, I think it shows you've got a problem. No kidding. I, uh, I have a, a line, since you're, you've been receptive, you might enjoy. I, I made up a riddle. What do you call a religious person who uh, says the end is coming? A crackpot. What do you call a secular person who says the world is ending? An environmentalist. I think that's, that's I've never heard that, but that is spot I made it on. up. Yep, yep. No, no, you I made that up. Yes. That's spot on. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, indeed. It's it's a relief to know that people like you exist. I just need you to know that. Well, thank you so much, sir, and thank you very much for your your kind words and for reading the book. It's um, I've been so excited. It was like it felt like Christmas again when I was a kid, where I was so much anticipation for people to actually read the book, so I could have these kind of conversations. That's great. We will continue another time. Look forward to your PragerU videos, and I'm doing everything I can to promote your book. Thank you so much, Dennis. Thank you. Apocalypse never. Why environmental alarmism hurts us all. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Michael Medved at michaelmedved.com for Town Hall. The New York Times seizes every opportunity to impute racist motives to Donald Trump, even when reacting to positive announcements that shouldn't be controversial. After his Independence Day Eve speech at Mount Rushmore, one Times headline read, President Trump orders National Garden of Heroes with list mostly of white men. Actually, Trump went out of his way to feature females and people of color who comprise 12 names on his 30-person list. That's 40% from colonial flag maker Betsy Ross to Dr. King to the ill-fated teacher astronaut Krista McAuliffe. No honest history of America would devote more than 40% of its space to female and black leaders. For our first 200 years, white males, for better or worse, utterly dominated every field of endeavor. Arguments over the Garden of Heroes do bring one welcome feature, focusing on the virtues of candidates for new memorials rather than stressing vices of those whose statues we seek to destroy. I'm Michael Medved. The Pepperdine School of Public Policy, America's unique graduate program for leaders. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu.